Welcome. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, you ready to talk about the love of God? If you're here last week, we, we paused right before perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16, and today we're going to really talk about that. <laughs> what does that mean? And I think so often we can, for those of us who have maybe heard John 3.16, we'll read it in a second here if you haven't heard it, I'm very excited for you, it's an it's amazing truth, uh, but if you have heard it times before, you can just sort of skim over it, and you kind of, oh yeah, that's nice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Oh, that's nice. I've heard that before. I get that. But do you stop long enough to really hear what God is saying through the gospel of John? Do you really hear what that means for you personally, for those others in this world? Or do you just kind of, yeah, I've heard that before. Why don't you be honest with yourself today? And hopefully that will lead you to maybe listen a little closer. In fact, this text we think is so important and so well known, and people will often bring it up that we think there's enough candy in this piñata that we're going to whack it twice. So Ryan's going to come back up next week, and he's going to preach on this same passage. I'm going to focus in on the so loved of this passage, and Ryan's going to fill out the greater context next week, because this piñata's got a lot of candy inside. And we want to make sure we crack it open so that you can enjoy the goodness of God through it, okay? Excited about that? So just imagine me whacking a pinata today. That's what I'll be doing with a little help from my friend Charlie. And uh, it's going to be good. So I don't have an imaginary friend Charlie with me. <laughs> We're going to show a video of Charlie Mackesy, uh, Oscar-winning artist Charlie Mackesy. And I'll tee him up a little bit before we show a clip from him. So let's pray and then we'll get right into it. Father God, we thank you for another opportunity to come and to study your word, to search the deep mysteries of it, that we might hear your voice through it, God. So would you speak to us this morning? Would we hear you saying these words to us? Would we hear, you are so loved that I sent my son to die for you? Would you help us to hear that personally today? Whether it's the thousandth time we've heard this verse preached on or the first that we'd hear your voice, God, make it so clear that you're speaking, not me, but you're speaking to each and every person in this room listening online, that you love them, that they are loved, that they are not alone in this universe. It's not cold, dark, and empty, but the God who created it is near, and he loves them. God, make that clear. Send your spirit to convict us of this beautiful truth and to free us to live as your beloved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you or your phone or something, you can turn to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one of these black ones somewhere near you in a seat back. Uh, that's going to be uh, near the back of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are biographies of Jesus' life death, resurrection, and ascension. And so 
We are going to be, if you grab one of those black Bibles, we'll be on page 943. If you don't own a Bible, take one of these home with you. The other thing that we have, if you haven't grabbed one of these yet, are these little blue. These are just the Gospel of John uh, journals. So they have places for notes in it. And so you can bring this with you each and every week, highlight things, underline. And you can do that in the Black Pew Bibles as well. Uh, The Word of God is meant to be consumed like a dog chews a bone. So chew on it. God has given it to us for our good, for our enjoyment. So don't, don't feel like you're not mess, messing anything up. God's not angry if you highlight. I got highlights and notes all in my Bible. And just chew it up like a dog chews a bone. So um, we're going to chew it up a little bit today. And we're going to focus in on this one verse. But I want to read the whole passage. Because one of the th- problems that happens with John 3.16 is we just read it by itself, and we don't get any of the larger context. Now, if you were here last week, you remember this verse comes in the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? Remember, he was one of the best at keeping God's law. So he was a very moral person, a very good person, a very, he would say, kind person. And yet, Jesus tells him, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be what? Born again. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean, born again? How can someone be born again? And Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit and of water. And he says, you must be cleansed of your sin. That's water, being born of the water, baptism of water. And you must be born of the Spirit, baptism of of the Spirit of God. That God will send his Spirit to, to actually bring you to life in a new way that you've never been brought to life before. And only God does that. That's a gift of God. So maybe Nicodemus is constantly following the law, cleansing, following the sacrificial system, atoning for his sins through the ways he's been taught, and Jesus comes in and just, just wrecks his worldview. He says, this is not the way to enter the kingdom of God. So that's just happened. And you remember then what Jesus says. He says, the Son of Man, which is a prophetic title from the Old Testament about the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior sent by God, The Son of Man must be lifted up just as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up. And the story we talked about last week, in case you weren't here, was in the Old Testament. uh, The people had grumbled against God. They'd stopped trusting in God. And God, to warn them, uh, brought uh, snakes into the picture. And all the Indiana Jones lovers said, what? Very scary snakes. And the snakes were biting and people were dying. And God told Moses, okay, to turn the people's trust back to me, I want you to fashion a staff with a bronze serpent on it. That's where we get our medical symbol from. And I want you to hold it up. And anyone that that trusts that God has sent you and told you to do that and looks upon and gazes upon the serpent will be saved. So that's the context. Okay? Jesus says, just like that, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now remember... At this point, Nicodemus couldn't have known this. The disciples couldn't have known this. Nobody could have known that Jesus would hang one day on a cross, high and lifted up for the sins of humanity. So it's not their fault. They're confused. And Nicodemus seems to have sort of walked away confused, not quite sure, but he's encountered something true. And I said last week, I think that what comes next is not necessarily the words of Jesus, though many have assumed Jesus... Uh, said these words, and probably he said something like this or this, but not in this scene. So 
This is John, I think, coming over the top and adding a theological uh, explanation or crescendo to this amazing conversation about you must be reborn, you must have your, get a new heart, the Spirit must come to live with you, that Spirit's from God, and now John is going to explain or crescendo what Jesus has just said. So I think that's what's going on. The language changes, the, the, the pronouns change, the way... So, so that's what's going on. Now, that is not to say this is all the Word of God. This is God speaking. But John is now going to do what we've been saying he does all the time in his, in his gospel, which is what? He's going to tell us exactly what he believes about this thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus, this thing that might have gotten confused in the two decades since the last gospel was written. The Jesus movement had been moving on and spreading And perhaps the understanding of who Jesus was and what he did had been watered down or misinterpreted. And John is coming and writing his gospel and saying, this is exactly what Jesus has said and done. And so he's adding some theological crescendo to this great encounter of Jesus and Nicodemus. So, enough background there. Let's read now what he says. John chapter 3, starting in verse, I'll start in verse 14. Because that, I believe, is the last thing Jesus said to Nicodemus, from what we can tell. Verse 14, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now John comes in and adds his crescendo. For God... Love the world in this way. Now, if you grew up memorizing God so loved the world, the CSB that we're reading out of here has just translated so as in this way. Okay? They're trying to say what so means is in this way. So for God so loved the world, I'll say, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He almost says the exact same thing Jesus has just said about the snake being lifted up. He's just adding some clarification. Then he goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Remember John chapter 1, the prologue? The word became flesh and the flesh was the light to all men. So the light has come into the world, but the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it. Why do they avoid it? So that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So there's the greater context of this famous, famous passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, 
but have eternal life. Okay, so what exactly does it mean that God so loved the world that he sent his son? What does it mean that he loved in this way? Don't gloss over that. Don't sentimentalize that. That God just had some nice feelings about you. That he's maybe not as angry as you might have thought he was. No, he's just as angry. (laughs) He loves all of his creation. Sin is a big deal to God. So what does it mean that he so loved you? What do you think of? Pause for a second. Meditate on this. What do you think of when you hear the word loved? If you're taking notes, maybe just jot down. What, what do you think of when you hear that word? John's going to tell us exactly what he thinks of when he hears that the Son of Man was lifted up just like the snake in the wilderness so that everybody that turns to him and gazes upon him in trust will have eternal life. This is what John thinks of. He thinks of agape love. In Greek, there's four words for love. It's one of the problems in the English. We really only have one word. That means so many different things. I have a dog, Moose. Everybody knows about it now. This is a picture of him pooping. (laughs) Ask somebody. I love Moose. I have two sons. I love my sons. I have a wife named Allie. I love my wife. March Madness is going on, and I played basketball. It was my first love. Am I saying the same thing? course not. Everyone knows Moose is my favorite. (laughs) He is the only one that I'm able to manipulate, (laughs) which is nice, which is nice. But that's not how our relationship with God works. We don't love him because he gives us food. He gives us food because he loves us. We love him because he first loved. So how did he love? John says agape. It's the most unconditional form of love. You could look back in the Sedaris archives. I preached a sermon on this back when we were out in the parking lot during COVID. The four love languages. C.S. Lewis has a whole essay book that he's written. You can find that on our resources pages on C.S. Lewis doodles. Look it up. It's pretty amazing to hear. So I can't go deep into it, but but I want to say this. In John's gospel, the term agape is used primarily to speak of the Father's love for the Son. So God the Father agapes God the Son. And God the Son agapes God the Father. And then John uses it here to say what? For God so loved. For God loved the world in this way. What way? Storge love, like you love a dog. Philea love, like you love a friend. 
Eros love, like you love a lover romantically. No, no, no. God agape, the world. Do you see how crazy that is? The world that's rejected him. John's already said this in chapter 1. The light came into the world and the world rejected. The world thought it knew more. The world took for granted the gifts given by God. And yet God loves the world in the same way he loves his one and only son. In the same way the son loves the father. Don't gloss over that. The world, he says. Don't gloss over that. The Old Testament tells us about God's love for Israel, for the chosen people, for Abraham's seed. And now John says, no, not just Israel, but the world, meaning Israel and Samaria and even the Romans. He loves everyone in this way. Agape love. Who's the world? How does, pay attention to that. Underline that in your journal. Every time the world is brought up, it's not brought up glowingly. It's brought up as what? The enemy of God. The world is the enemy of God. And John's saying, God loved his enemy in this way. In what way? He was willing to give his one and only son his most valued possession, the treasure of the triune God. He gave that. For who? The world. His enemy. Don't gloss over. John tells us more. Keep reading. For he loved this in this way. And he goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. The point of Jesus' coming was not primarily to condemn the world, but to save the world through Jesus, through the Son. And anyone who believes in the Son is not condemned. That's an amazing truth. You've heard it so many times, you might forget how crazy it is. John's going to tell you how crazy it is. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So what is so crazy about this? The default state, John is saying, he says, is already condemned. The default state of every human being that exists currently on the, on the earth is condemnation, is separation from God is taking upon themselves the judgment that they have earned. That's the default state. Romans 6.23 says what? Throw it on the screen here. Come run. For the, you may have heard this. For the wages of sin is death. That's the default state. You have been earning wages your whole life by doing it on your own Pursuing things other than what God has planned for you and prepared for you and guided you towards, that's your wages. You get paid for that. And the payment equals death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
your default state, the way you get paid, the wages you're earning, every single one of us, before we turn our gaze upon Jesus and trust in him and believe that he's the son of God is condemnation, is death. We will perish, John 3.16 says. That's just the way it's going. So many of us want to think, well, there's sort of three options. And John sort of classically does this. He sees the world in black and white. A or B. Some of us like to see A, B, C. Some of us like to live in the gray. And John's just making it very clear that this is exactly how it works. There are those who are condemned, who are earning wages, that are equal to death, that are leading to death. And there is B. Those of us who have turned to Jesus in repentance, believing that we cannot save ourselves, no matter how morally good we might be or try to be, we are still earning wages until we turn to Jesus and accept his free gift, his payment. He took on himself our wages and gave us the gift of eternal life in its place. It's unfathomable. It's why, it's why we gloss over this because if we think about it too much, we can't help but weep. If you're not weeping, you're probably not thinking about what you've earned or what you've been given. Or you've just never picked up the gift and unwrapped it. John is saying we don't just accidentally, if we're not so bad, maybe find our way to eternal life. We are already in condemnation. We are already in death. Only Jesus can remove that sentence of death. He is the only way, John makes clear. Why is he the only way? We struggle with this. Why, why couldn't there just be this C option? None of the above, or we'll see when we get there, or where the wind blows. Well, John makes it clear. Only Jesus was lifted up, only Jesus died in our place, and only Jesus rose from the grave to prove that he is the only. And the onlyness of Jesus is part of the love. Think about a moment where there's only one way to save someone or something. How many times have we realized there's only one way, and instead of doing that thing, we chose to do nothing because we know how hard that thing is. So we say to ourselves to justify, well, if there were other ways, then I definitely would have helped you. If there were other ways, then I definitely would have sacrificed. But this was the only way, and no one can be expected to do this. And when that was presented to God, that there is only one way, to trade the wages of sin and rebellion against God. The only way is for God to come himself by sending the Son. And the Son must die and take upon himself. That's the only way. When God looked at that, he didn't say, well, if there were another way, I would have done it. He said, I'll choose that way. That's what kind of love this is. God was not condemned already. God could have started over, but he chose the way. The way. 
the only way. That is his love. Now I'm guessing, because I'm not hearing, it's at a funeral yesterday, so I know what crying sounds like. I'm not hearing it. We haven't grasped the love of God. But don't worry, I knew you wouldn't grasp the love of God. Because though God has given us new hearts, some of the old still messes and gets in our way. And sometimes when we can't quite grasp this true idea of agape love, of true love, who should we turn to? Not to the accountants, that's me. Not to the finance guys. No, no, no. Not to the salesmen. Not to the doctors. Not to the nurses, even. Who do we turn to? The artist. The artist has been given a gift. And it's a terrible gift. The artist feels things that others don't. The artist weeps tears. The accountant never will. We need the artists. We need the artists in our church. We need the artists to stand up, share their voice, as difficult as that is. And this week, because one of those artists who is a follower of Jesus stood up, chose the path that was harder rather than easier, uh, this artist touched the world. And the world recognized that he saw something that others couldn't. And he drew things that others couldn't. And he spoke words that others couldn't. And, and he won an Oscar for it. How many of you know of the book, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse? Raise your hand if you know. the. Okay. I mean, if you really knew it, you'd raise your hand much higher. I mean, this is something we should be excited about. It's an amazing book by an artist named Charlie Mackesy. And it was basically, and you could, this is on Apple Plus. If you have Apple Plus, you can watch the an, short animated film that was created from his book, and you can watch an interview with him where he talks about this process and how he didn't really want to do it. And it all started with him making some drawings and posting them online, and it was really affecting during the pandemic people and touching their heart in a way that the accountants can't. And... and uh, People urged him to put all those drawings together in a book, and so they put it together in a book, and now over 8 million copies of that book have been sold. And then somebody said, more people have to see that because there's people that don't read. <laughs> and so he's like, fine, I'll do an audio book. And so he made an audio book published by the BBC, and he's like, you know, some people really don't like audio books because there's a visual quality to his work. And so they said, you need to make a film. And so he's fine, I'll make a film. And now he's an artist. He wants to just hang out by himself in a room and draw. But all these people are forcing him to come out. He said, fine. So he made a film and the world recognized that there's something about his work that's transcendent. And he won an Oscar for it. But what most of the world doesn't know is that transcendence that's seen in his work is a product of his faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so when I heard Charlie Mackesy had won the Oscar, I was very excited. And if you're an Alpha, you know how excited I've been. Because in Alpha, our Introduction to Christianity course, Charlie Mackesy's art's on the stage, the prodigal son, a bronze statue. And Nicky Gumbel talks about Charlie Mackesy. And, and 
was so excited because we're doing Alpha right now. And so I started watching some videos because I knew that Charlie Mackesy also sometimes talks at Alpha in London at Holy Trinity Brompton. Like he does the Alpha talks and I'd heard one before and I went back and I watched that and I got to watching some more of his talks and I found out uh, Charlie Mackesy came to faith in Jesus through Alpha and he's done Alpha over 60 times since because he believes in introducing people to Jesus. And so, just like John clarifies and magnifies what this means that God so loved the world, I think Charlie Mackesy clarifies and magnifies. In this clip, I'm going to show you this short Good Friday talk. If you don't know what Good Friday is, it's the Friday before Easter. It's coming up pretty soon, and if you never come to Good Friday services, you're missing out because these are the kind of things that are said Good Friday is about the love of God. God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son to hang on a cross for your sin. And Charlie Maxey talks about that and how he used to gloss over that and how when he really looks at it, it transforms him. So I'm showing this because I want you to know about Charlie Maxey and I want you to know about the love of God. And I've put up in the prayer room Charlie Maxey's book, And I've also put the audiobook <laughs> on our little phone up there, and I've put a link. I've made it so easy for you. And if you have 58 minutes sometime, come to the room. Turn on the Bluetooth speaker. Turn up. Charlie Mackesy reads it himself. Open the book. Let it speak to you. But even before you do that, watch Charlie Mackesy talk about the love of God. So I'm going to come off a stage for a sec, for several seconds. It's about a 15-minute clip. Get ready. We're going to turn down the lights, and we're going to hear from an artist about the love of God. It seems uh, Jesus didn't say very much on this day, so it would probably be inappropriate if I babbled. Um, but if I, if I sort of do babble a bit, and you get nothing from it, just remember this that you're loved, that you are loved, you are loved. And if I just stood here and said that for five minutes and sat down, it would probably look better than the inane rant I'm about to give you. I don't know if you go to church here. Maybe you've never been here before, if you go to church normally or if you actually go to a normal church. Um, uh, but one evening I came here and... Um, it was very loud, and there was a lot of smoke that was made on purpose, and people had their hands in the air and were doing things, and were being quite cool, and I didn't really feel very cool at all. Um, it was like, hey, God's here in Kensington, and he's English. Um, which is fine if you feel that. I didn't feel that, and, uh, and I, what I did was I left quite quickly, feeling nothing, but re so quite resentment that the smoke and the volume weren't really what I was after at all. And I went home, and when I got home, I sat in my armchair, and my home is quite scuzzy, and uh, I sat down, and uh, facing... Bill's 
unwashed dishes, um, not bills, I mean bills and unwashed dishes, um, uh, <laughs> dirty things, and a message on my phone from a friend who has cancer who's dying. And I sat there for quite a long time and, and feeling this kind of sense of deep, I don't know if you have, have this, maybe you don't, maybe you're kind of young and cool and happy and it's, life's good, but I felt this deep kind of nothingness. And I thought, I've just been to church and feel very empty. And I was thinking about my friend who's dying and basically my question was, where is the God of Pazaz? Now, where is the God of flashing lights? Now, in my armchair, feeling crap. And my answer was, he isn't. We just kind of do this weird thing where we get together and make weird sounds and we think it's cool and then we go home and actually it's not. That's what I thought. And I sat there for a long time thinking, uh, maybe you don't ever have these big chasms of nothing. But I did, and there was, I have loads of books in my house, and I saw a corner of a book sitting on the, on the side table, and I just pulled it out, like two books, one was Oscar Wilde's book, and this other one was, it was a, a, a series of paintings that were shown in the National Gallery, and it was called Seeing Salvation, the exhibition, it was painting paintings of Jesus, and the, the one on the cover, um, when I looked at it, it was honestly like being slapped in the face. Can we, do, we, do we have that image here? It was painted by someone, it's anonymously painted in sort of 1500s. And I stared at it for really quite a long time. And what struck me most about it was his eyes were red from crying. And it seemed like there was blood in his tears. And I don't know how to describe it, but I, I, I think it, it hit me very profoundly that the pizzazz and the smoke and the da-da-da-da are all fine. But I'd forgotten, and I'd been going to church for a long time, I'd forgotten who this person really was, what he was. And I sat there thinking, who are you? Just stared at his face. It's one of the greatest paintings I've ever seen in my life, I think. And one of the, I, I kind of, one of the songs I had in my head from years ago was this. But it's not a song, it's actually a verse. But it's, may your attitude be that of Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. And I thought, that's not like me. I want to be something. This person, whoever he is, became nothing. And it just, I just stared at his face and thought, you know, I don't know who you really are. My Christianity is very kind of cool. Yeah, it's Christian. I'm a Christian. Yeah, don't do this, don't do that. Yeah, I go to church. It's fun. We sing. It's great. Yeah. Then, bang, this kind of being slaps me in the face who is totally other, totally something, and you know, the, if you really, really look at his life, he was despised and rejected, oppressed and afflicted. He was a man of sorrows, was acquainted with grief, and we held him in very low esteem. 
And yet he's the most influential leader we've ever had, but he washed people's feet. There was nothing about him to attract us to him, so it says. He was homeless, was born in a shed. He invited criminals who were shepherds to his birth. He was a non-violent revolutionary who hung out with lepers and crooks, prostitutes, broken people, tired people, people who couldn't be bothered to sing would leave early. People who had no religion, ordinary people, naughty people. He didn't come to judge you at all, to save you. That interests me. Religion doesn't. I don't know how you feel about religion. And so when I sat in my chair, I just kind of, I don't know if you ever do this, where you go on these kind of long thought process, trains of thought, where, where you just think about someone and really look at them and look into them. And I sort of looked into him. And the more I thought about it, the more profound it became. And the, the whole idea that God, if you could, I mean, I, I don't understand it. It's bizarre, this mystery, that God could contract a span and become man. It's incomprehensible that he could do that but that he did, and that he would make himself nothing and be nothing and, and probably smile quite a lot. It's mind-blowing. And he was humiliated, so humiliated. This is God being humiliated by arrogant man. And the other book that was on my side was by Oscar Wilde. And he's one of my favorite writers, and he wrote a book called De Profundis, which he wrote when he was in prison. Um, he was in prison for being gay, which is quite amusing, but it's not really, it's tragic. Uh, and uh, he was, had this moment, a, a lot of the book, De Profundis, it's a third of it's probably on Jesus. So towards the end of the book, he talks about Christ in a way that I haven't really read before. You wouldn't expect it coming from him. And I think what triggered it was his moment on Clapham Common, junk, in, um, not Clapham Junction Station. And he was standing, apparently, he says this in anyway, his book, he says, I was brought down here, this is in 1895, from two o'clock till half past two on that day, I had to stand on the center platform of Clapham Junction in convict dress and handcuffed for all the world to look at. Of all possible objects, I was the most grotesque. When people saw me, they laughed. Each train as it came up swelled the audience. Nothing could exceed their amusement. That was, of course, before they knew who I was. As soon as they'd been informed, they laughed even more. For half an hour, I stood there in the grey November rain, surrounded by a jeering mob. And he goes on to say that religion, he says, does not help me. But then, <laughs> he then speaks of Jesus in the most beautiful way. I haven't read writing like that, of his Christ's empathy, Christ's kindness, Christ's aligning with the suffering. And my question then was, because that's what I thought Jesus was, was just someone incredibly kind who came to show compassion. But, if, but I, don't, I don't think you get crucified for being empathetic or kind. And so again, my, my thought process is, what was he doing? Why was he sweating blood? Apparently you do that when you're really, really terrified. Why? And clearly, you know, if you read, when I've sort of read about him, he seemed quite confident about his crucifixion to come, his death. He's very sort of gung-ho, this is what I've come to do. And yet, what's he scared of then? Why is he so terrified? He was courageous. There are, you know, there are suddenly, there are, there are 
many martyrs who've gone willingly to their death, Socrates and all the various people in history have been happy to do it, and yet he suddenly is terrified. And people could say, you know, Mel Gibson did his movie with, with blood and everything, and you could say, well, he's terrified of the physical pain. Well, you know, the crucifixion was created by the barbarians and adopted by the Romans, and, and it's apparently the most cruel, cruel, tortuous form of execution that ever existed. And they would hang you head height. This whole bizarre idea, they lofted you up. You were head height, so you could see spat at and slapped, shouted at in your face. It take, took days to die. Was he scared of that? Probably. What it seems to be is a, is a deeper fear, which is this, and it, it, there's a hint of it when Peter, you know, in, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, Peter sort of tries to stop it with a sword, and it's all kind of quite wild and things. And Jesus says this, shall I not drink from the cup my father has given me? And I always think the cup was quite poetic and quite sort of, you know, I don't know, I didn't really know what it meant. But the cup he refers to is one that's well known in the Old Testament, which is, the cup is, is a symbol, if you like. It's a regular symbol of God's wrath, God's rage. And it says that the wicked, a wicked person must drink from the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. And I am wicked. So I'm headed for that. And Jesus was terrified of this. And he said, he said, if it's possible, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. But not as I will, but as you will. So he, that cup he refers to is this, is that he's going to drink from the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Not only that, but he's also going to become sin. He's, <laughs> I mean, this is a mystery. I'm saying these words, and as I'm listening to my mouth, I'm thinking, that sounds insane. It's insane. And so hard to understand. And I, I've given up trying, actually, frankly. But the one thing I'd say of it is that it works. That's the bizarre thing. It actually works. But we don't know what pains he had to bear, as the hymn says. But we believe it was for us. And his terror of con- sort of, I suppose, coming, if he's sinless, coming to full contact with human sin must have mean it made his soul recoil. The alienation from his father, which judgment on sin would involve, was terrifying. And he basically <gasps> hung back from it. I'm sure he was fine with that, with the sort of slapping in the blood. And I suppose if I was going to try and explain the cross, I'd say that there is a dark division. I think we began pretty well with God, and then we created this dark division and put ourselves somewhere in the middle of everything. And he seems to be coming to consume the darkness, to absorb it, to take away the division. And my dad had cancer. I watched him dying of cancer. And he was, there was someone I loved who was being invaded by cancer. And it's a horrible thing to see someone you love so much being taken over by something so dark. And yet he was a man who was, was absorbing all of us. I mean, my stuff is enough to be getting on with, let alone the human race, historically. 
It's huge, but I still don't understand it. And one of the greatest things he does is I think we have sort of, we, we've inherited a kind of shame that we began freely with God to look at him and smile in, in the garden, whatever that was. We lost it and we, we hid. I don't know if you know that feeling where you're ashamed, you hide, you're aware of yourself, you're on whatever it is. And Jesus comes to take that away, to close the divide and say, you're free to look at him now. And you can have your smoke and your guitars and you can have your silence. However you choose to do it, you're free to look straight in the eye because he's done it. And religion to me was you doing it. This is him doing it. And that's the shocker. And I actually, to be honest, we thought morality would be enough and it would get me home. It doesn't. It's probably the ugliest thing that's ever happened in the cosmos without question, actually not probably at all, but it's also the most beautiful. Um, and I think what's incredible about the crucifixion, you know, if you see the birth of Jesus, he invites naughty people, the shepherds, um, and at the end, that's the beginning of his life. At the end of his life, he's hanging with, you know, crucifixion was really reserved for murderers. It wasn't a sort of common way of dying. You had to be a really seriously bad person to be hung up there. And he was hung between two, two of these guys. One of them, who was the bottom of society. It's a, such a bizarre thing that he's the, this, this guy hanging next to him is the first person Jesus welcomes into the kingdom. So if you look at the paradox of this, we think, I think it was all about good people doing good things. The birth, you've got naughty shepherds. His death, he invites a pretty serious criminal. And the criminal defends him, actually. The criminal sort of says, listen, we deserve what's being done to us, but not him. And the criminal, the, 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 he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, and if, you, if, you, if you ever want to pray a prayer, that's the prayer to pray. <laughs> Just do that. Because Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'd like to hear that. And I would say to you, I don't know where you are with your faith, but um, I'm sorry, actually, if you've ever um, been gossiped about or judged from a Christian perspective, because I would say this, that nothing can be achieved except through his grace. Nothing. It's a ludicrous idea. It always gets me when there's a scandal about a Christian. Of course there's a scandal about a Christian. It's a human there are always scandals about Christians. It doesn't matter. We're not good. Get over it. Leave them alone. So if you have been, I'm sorry. Um, Oscar Wilde, I'll go back to him and shut up. He said this in, about, about Jesus in this book, De Profundis. If you want to read a great book, read it. It's amazing. From prison. He said this of Jesus. There is still something to me almost incredible in the idea of a young Galilean peasant imagining that he could bear on his own shoulders the burden of the entire world, all that had already been done and suffered, and all that was yet to be done and suffered, the sins of Nero, of Caesar Borgia, of Alexander VI, and of him who was emperor of Rome and the priest of the sun, the sufferings of those whose names are legion and whose dwelling is among the tombs, oppressed nationalities, factory children, thieves, people in prison, outcasts, 
those who are dumb under oppression, and those whose silence is heard only of God. And not merely imagining this, but actually achieving it, so that at the present moment, all who come in contact with his personality, even though they may, they may neither bow to his altar, nor kneel before his priest, in some way find that the ugliness of their sin is taken away and the beauty of their sorrow revealed to them. Thanks, Oscar. Thank you. This is Charlie's book, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. We've got a little note on it so you know how to turn on the audio. There's so much wisdom. It's like for me sort of reading through Proverbs. There's so much wisdom, and the world recognizes it as wisdom. Charlie recognizes it as a reflection of his relationship with Jesus. There's just one line, I'll show it to you. This is sort of how the book is. It's, it's not really a story. <laughs> it's sort of drawings with little sayings in it, and they're, in the movie they piece it together so it has a bit of a flow. But this is a, for instance, the boy and the mole are sitting on a tree. The, the boy asks, what do you think success is? The mole replies, to love. Millions read that and they think of one thing. Charlie reads that and he thinks of what he just said. That God came that the Father sent the Son, and that he bore sin on himself. For God loved the world in this way. He so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One of our principles here at Sedaris is love works, and it's a double entendre. The love of God worked. You are now free from condemnation, from the wages of sin, which is death. You are free from your own shame and your own guilt, if you so choose, by the blood of Jesus. It works. I loved when he said that. It's a mystery what that means, that God in Christ bore your sin on the cross. And the way we know it's true is because it works. I hope you've experienced that freedom. I know I have. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that I won't sin. It doesn't mean that one day there won't be a smoke machine up here and lasers. I mean, I'm fighting off Ryan all the time. And this guy's a real smoke machine guy. He wants more smoke, more machine. But even then, Christ has saved me. It works. But it had to work. God had to leave his throne. He had to leave his comfort. He had to step down into our mess, put on our mess, 
take on our mess so that we could put on him, take on the holiness of the ground where he lived and have eternal life. Love works. It doesn't just feel. It moves. It acts. It sacrifices. And God so loved the world in this way that he died for us. And I think if we want to reflect that kind of love, if we want to have a successful life like the mole says, we want to truly love like God loves, it always takes some type of death to lead to some type of new life for those we love. You cannot have it, the new life, without sacrificing some old life. You cannot have the new life of the understanding of love like Charlie talked about without dying to some bad theology about the love of God. I cannot love Moose or my kids or my wife without dying to something that gave me life previously. It has to go so that new life can come. It works no other way. It's one of the reasons that I know the gospel is true. Because if you just live out God's love and his sacrifice in some small way, new life always comes. Just try it. Just watch. And the gospel proves itself to be that thing in the world which is ultimately true. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray.